Okay, so guys, um, really glad to have you on. My name is Bill. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to have you guys on. My name is Bill. Can you hear me clearly? Yeah, I do. All right, sure. Gide, can you hear me? Yes, I can. I can hear you. All right, cool. So my name is Bill. Um, I'm part of the team called Discovering Truth. So basically, what we do is to facilitate um, actually what we call existential conversations. Um, Ranging from topics of God and um, religion, and uh, it's a it's a non-denominational Christian organization. Like me. So, yeah. so today the conversation is primarily about uh, it's between it's not it's not a debate. It shall be facilitated debate. So it's just going to be a regular conversation between two people who have left the faith. So I just I'll leave the both of you to introduce yourselves. And uh, your name, where you live. Um, Fishing, and then we can continue the conversation. So we start with T-Bag. So T-Bag. All right, sure. My popular name is T-Bag, but then my actual name is Samuel Asifua. So I'm from Ghana. I live in Accra. And then I grew up in Cape Coast, but I did most of my schooling there and then my tertiary in Accra. So as I'm talking now, I'm in Accra. And I left the fit um, taking like a final stance was like 2017. But then I start I started having doubts as of 2015. Yeah. I think that would do for now. Thanks. Thank you. Um, let's hear from you. All right. Um my name is Jide Adegun. Um, I'm from Nigeria. I reside in Lagos. Um, I describe myself as an ex-Christian atheist um, and also sometimes as a naturalist. I, um, I, what else am I supposed to say? I mean, I, I, I should I say stopped being a Christian? I deconverted. Um, around mid-2018, um, before which I was, I served in a lot of capacities in churches, mostly in the choir as a music director and all that. Um, I used to write on the blog, um, on Facebook as well, and then I had a number of other engagements as well, Christian engagements. So that was before I deconverted in 2018. So that's basically all for now, I think. Um, I think T-Bag, you mentioned um, someone, right? You mentioned that you have a Christian background. Yeah, yeah. Your parents, your parents are clearly Can you talk more about that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I I grew up in a Christian family, like a deep Christian family. As I said earlier on, my dad is like an ordained reverend minister as at now. My mom is a local preacher in the Methodist circuit. They have this thing called circuit, like small, like suburbs of the church branches. I don't really know. And then I have three uncles. One is a catechist in a parish where I live. And then one is a fountain gate pastor for the Cape Coast branch. And the other one is a chorister another parish in Cape Coast. So, and my stepbrother is like a music director 
in one of the Catholic churches. So actually, my family has like has been split into two churches. My daddy's side, which was which is Catholic, but then my daddy became a charismatic pastor when I was growing up, and my mommy's is still stuck on being a Methodist, although she joins some charismatic services in other churches and all, but she's like by foundation a Methodist. And then my sister is also religious. I really don't know much about her religious aspect of her, but then she's religious, yeah. So basically, my family is like a mission house on its own, like a missionary on its own. <laughs> Very interesting how... So, yeah, so it's like, I'm, I'm, should I say a black sheep? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a black sheep of the family, yeah. Okay. Any um, highlight on your education? Um, are, you, are you currently in school? Are you out of school? Well, I'm, I'm out of school. I I schooled in Cape Coast. I went to Infancipim. Yeah. And when I was in Infancipim, I was... I'm trying to touch on my religious background. And it's who I was like a very religious person. I mean, growing up in a religious family obviously make you religious. Thinking that your God is right and all, yeah, all those things. So um, in the fancy I was part of, we had a group called a preaching group. We had one called um, Joyful Way. They used to sing. So I was in Joyful a cappella, and I was in preaching group and I was sometimes part of Gamsu. Yeah, and part of a group which used to we have a place called a prayer chapel, so we just used to meet in our dorms to pray, yeah, for the school and exams, yeah, all those uh, delusional things, yeah. So, um, that's basically my religious type. So, I did my tertiary in Accra, Legon, and I got out, I think, two years ago, yeah. Did it, um, any, any like highlights? Further highlights on your religious background, like for your family, the church. Yeah, so um, I, I have a rather variegated um, religious history as well. Um, I was born into more or less an apostolic Pentecostal kind of setting, although my mom, I don't know what my mom told me. Um, she personally had, um, should I say, been to some traditionalists before she became a Christian herself. And then um, her uncle was a member of these, you know, white garment churches. And so when she was pregnant with me, he said I had to be under protection and stuff like that. So um, I was actually born into that white garment church kind of setting. Um, as a child, I grew up you know, being, um, going to the apostolic church with my mom. And then um, around when I was five years old, she became a pastor. She she said God had called her into the ministry. So she became a pastor. She started her own church and she was, she got ordained when I was around seven years old. And by so doing, I became, because I, I'm very close to my mom. So I sort of like caught up with that kind of spirit, you know, I, right from that very young age, I've been very interested in the Bible, very interested in preaching. I used to preach on buses. I used to preach in crusades. Um, I used to teach in, you know, Sunday school and all those things like that, right from a very young age. So when I got into the university, 
I sort of like switched from, you know, that Pentecostal kind of background into a more modern word of faith oriented kind of church. Um, and I, I, I sort of like absorbed that culture as well um, until around 2013, when I encountered Joseph Prince, who, you know, gave me radical change in the way I saw theology at the time. I, I knew my thing, like right from time, but then um, my encounter with Joseph Prince's materials exposed me to a whole lot of things that I hadn't heard in that perspective before. And so it made me even more interested in the Bible, in you know the truths of God as Christians say it. So I read um, the Bible again, back to back. I read different translations of it and all that. So wow. that sort of like informed my theology. <laughs> that sort of like informed my theology, and you know, I just I got into a more word of faith kind of setting, like something much stronger. Um, through my encounter with Joseph Prince. And it wasn't just for the faith, but it was also the so-called grace doctrine, the so-called grace gospel, um, like that. So that was where I was. I circled around in, um, until around 2015, when I also encountered um, a pastor in Nigeria. So many people on social media might know him. His name is Onoyin Kaolushegunwan. I began to listen to his teachings as well. Um, all this while, in my own church in Lagos, I was going to a more or less Pentecostal church as well, but it's also Word of Faith and Pentecostal as well. So but I used to learn from these external sources as well, because I, I was very, very, very deeply engrossed in theology. So all that until 2018, when I began to deconstruct and then I deconverted. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and like Nikki, like, it's not like the story of like the whole you know, but airman, like very radical Christians and all of a sudden. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool. Uh, so I think I would like to know the what what how did the, the conversion, so to speak, start, right? So I think I'm going to start with T Mac Samuel. Some of you, your mother has given you to God, dedicated you to God. Said no, you know, <laughs> so how how did it start? What was the problem? What what tipped it off to you? Um, okay, I'll, I'll start with how it started, like when the doubt started before I get to the last straw. It will make rain like two hours. So as I as I was saying, I started having my doubts in 2015 like when i got into university i started reading a lot of um, materials about christianity um lee strobel's material a case for christ i mean i wanted to have this kind of unshakable faith and then put skepticism aside so i was reading Lee strobel i was trying different churches and all you see that that first, like trying different churches. And I actually I was a drummer too. I mean, I can still drum. I'm very good at it. So I used to move from one church to the other, trying to drum, but essentially to listen to what 
preacher men had to say. I'm not like Jared, like I didn't really engross myself in theology that much, reading of the Bible and like I wasn't really that type. I'm more of like a questioning type. So I didn't really get into reading the Bible cover to cover, no, no, no. So theology wasn't really my thing. But then the unanswered questions kept me on my toes and gave me enough doubt about my faith. So I, in 2017, I was like, okay, let me just sit down and assess like, what I believe in so much better. So I sat down, asked myself questions, and then praying and all just to, you get it like, I didn't want to lose the faith. And I, I wasn't depressed when I was losing it. I know a lot of people get depressed along the line and all, but I wasn't really depressed. The questions kept popping up over and over again. They kept popping up over and over again. Sometimes I overlooked them. Sometimes I was like, nah. And even reading a bit of the Bible will make you know that nah, what you believe in isn't really it. So in 2018, I think I read a lot about different religions, like different religions. And I was like, it's like a mythology cut across. Like every religion has its myth thesis as, as valid. The mythology cut across. So it looks like mine isn't so special. I mean, the Christian mythology. Mine isn't so special. So I had to keep on reading about them and how everyone, every each, each religion proclaims theirs to be the valid one. So I had this funny calculation I used to do. I was like, if there are 4,200 known religions in the world, what is the probability that one is right? That's like one out of 4,200. That's going to give you like a very weird number. So dropping that to zero is, is, is like an easy task because getting a significant figure in that number alone will take you so much time. So in fact, just drop it to zero. So when I decided to take a stance, I became a deist. These are people who like, believe in this intelligent design. So I got rid of religion and became a deist, but that didn't last because I, I, I read and I saw compelling arguments against deism. So like much more hinged to atheism than deism. Because the arguments for intelligent design began not to make sense at the point in time. And then I became an atheist in my mind, but I hadn't proclaimed myself as one because I felt I had to still work on some stuff. So in 2018, I think, ending of 2018 or early 2019, I can't really remember. And I decided to tell my daddy, I mean, the pastor. I told him that I had to tell him something. I hadn't seen him in a while, so on my graduation day, that's in November 2019, he came, and after the graduation, we sat down and we started talking about this. So we, um, we spoke about it and I told him, I've, I've lost it all. So <laughs> typical pastors, he sent me Bible verses, materials, <laughs> all those things, just to try and get me back. Because I was really vibrant. I was a vibrant Christian, and I helped him a lot in his ministry. So he tried to get me back. 
but <laughs> it didn't work out. Like it really didn't work out, and my brain was working. So it didn't work out, and I so like the beginning of twenty twenties when I declared I know the truth of the matter is I don't believe this anymore. Like I don't believe this, not in my personal God as a Christian God, not in any other God. Not in any God. So I think there's a name for it. If you don't believe in, there's a name for it. So why do I have to feel like shy or tensioned not to take it? So like that was a break point. So no weird religious experiences, no depression, nothing. I just put it aside because of new information and new evidence. Yeah, basically that's all. If I go to Jide, do you think there is something can convince you to come back? Do you think there is a way back? Uh, evidence. I always say that the only thing I, I, I want to know is, or I want to see is an evidence for a God. Even with that, even with that, I'll stop being an atheist, but my contempt for organized religion is going to be there. I told you I was an anti-theist. So I'm, I'm not just like lacking beliefs in God or that kind of thing. Even if you are able to prove that your God is real, I'll just stop being an atheist. But my contempt for organized religion will be because the structures are still there. They, they, put, they, are, they are still there. The churches are still there. The mosques are still there. The, the fundamentalists are still there. The jihad, those people, the extremists are still around. And the people trying to oppress other people, they are, they are still around. So the contempt, I think, is going to remain. But I'll just stop being an atheist. Jide, uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, <laughs> where do I start? It's it's um, ironically. Sorry, I think there's some background noise. I don't know where that's coming from. Okay. So, um, ironically, I think my deconversion is sort of complex but it's also probably the fastest i've heard of <laughs> since i've been talking to people but uh, i'll just try to summarize because there's a whole lot of complexity going in there now um as i said it was around 2013 that i really began to take theology very 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 seriously i mean i was taking it seriously prior to that but there were some things that happened, especially my exposure to Joseph Prince, that actually made me very engrossed in it. But then one of the things I discovered at that time was that there was a whole lot of disagreements among Christians. Like there is, there is basically nothing that Christians have unanimity on. Okay, is it the deity of Christ? Is it what the Trinity really is? Um, I mean, there's just so many things um, at the time, some of the things that I used to have issues with people on were things like tithing. Okay, are we supposed to pay tithes as Christians? Um, are we, is, is salvation eternal or is it something that can be lost? Um, can Christians be possessed by the devil? Is it possible for a Christian to sin? I mean, these were these some things that, and one of the things I realized then was that there was basically never, um, you know, there was basically never a unanimous agreement amongst Christians. And it worried me a lot because I used to think, okay, I mean, isn't God seeing all these 
this agreement going on? Why doesn't God just sort of like show up and just clarify this issue? And more importantly, why is it that everyone, even those that are saying directly contradictory things, claim that the Holy Spirit is speaking to them? Like, is the Holy Spirit actually telling people conflicting things and all that? So that was the very first issue I had. And this began, I mean, I, I've had this for a while, but it actually began, let's say, like around 2014. That was when it really, really solidified in my mind. Also, um, on a more concrete level, let me just bring the story home. There was a time around 2017 where, when some of my colleagues and I had this, um, we had some debates on the issue of falling under the anointing and laughing in the spirit. I don't know if we know what those things refer to. Basically, falling under the anointing is when maybe you're worshiping or somebody lays their hands on you and then you fall. Um, supposedly because the Holy Spirit is acting on you or, the, or maybe a demon is trying to leave you or something like that. And then there's this one called laughing in the spirit, which is sort of like weird and spooky. It's just people laughing and, you know, saying the Holy Spirit is making them laugh and all that. So I had a series of discussions with several people on this, that these two things are not in the Bible. They're not biblical. I had this, you know, solar scriptural mentality that, the Bible has to be the vetting authority on whatever it is that we believe as Christians. So a lot of people try to tell me that, no, it's not, it's not just about the Bible. Um, it's sometimes, you know, the Holy Spirit can move spontaneously and all that. And we, we all had different backs and forths on the issues. And I kept telling them that, guys, you are the same people who say that, we need to rely on the scripture when it comes to matters about salvation or whatever it is. But then why are you shifting the goalpost on this particular issue? Um, and so we all, you know, the, the bickering went on and on and on and on. And I said, okay, you know what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go into the scriptures. And I'm going to study the Bible myself to see whether the Bible actually says this thing. So I studied the parts of the Bible that really focused on the gifts of the spirit. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, I think. So I studied those parts just to see, okay, what actually does the Bible say on this issue? And of course, from the way I studied this, I had discussions with my friends. I saw that those things are actually not scriptural. But more importantly, I discovered something that I hadn't discovered before. I discovered that there were contradictions, especially in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. I saw some things there that were like, hey, if the teachings that we've been perpetuating in our circles are anything to go by, then these verses actually contradict each other. For example, uh, let me just give one example. There's a place where Paul says something like, um, you know, um, this, the, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to everyone for the benefit of all. For um, I think this is First Corinthians 12, verse 7 to 9 or so. So one is given word of wisdom, word of knowledge, and all that. So basically, it's saying there that not everybody has those gifts, that some, some are given something, some are given other things, and then everybody uses what they are given for the benefit of the church. But then you read another part, and then it says something like, Anybody can do anything. I think this is First Corinthians 14. I'm like, okay, what are you actually saying? Are you saying it's just what people have or is it that you can choose whatever it is? So I had several discussions with people on these subjects and the answers were basically unsatisfactory. And from there, the cracks started coming in. I began to see that, hey, this Bible is not as perfect as people say it is. 
Um, so that was one of the first things I noticed for me. And then I came into, of course, from biology class in secondary school, I knew about evolution, but it never really occurred to me um, in the way that it occurred to me recently. When I actually took my time to study the subject very well, I saw that, hey, the evidence for evolution is actually conclusive. Like it's, it's so difficult. The way I say it, I say it takes total ignorance or total dishonesty to deny evolution. So now at the time when I, when I um, realized this, I was still like, hey, you know, maybe God used evolution, maybe um, evolution is just one way that God used. But then I began to compare that with what I actually knew in theology that, hey, if evolution is true, then that means there was no Adam and Eve because there was never a first pair of human beings. Humans evolved gradually from earlier apes. And if that never happened, then there was no such thing as original sin. And if there's no original sin, then there's no need for Christianity because the central theme of Christianity is that Jesus died so that our sins can be washed away. But if there is no sin to be washed away, then even if Jesus died and was raised from the dead, it's all useless. It doesn't really do anything. So that made me look and say, you know what? I think this evolution spells very serious problems for my Christianity. And then there were other things too. Let me not, let me just summarize so I don't take too much of the time. But there were other things too. For example, the issue of miracles and answered prayers. I actually look at things objectively and realize that most of the time when people say, okay, they had answered prayers or they saw miracles, there's a whole lot of confirmation bias going on. There's a whole lot of other cognitive biases going on. I recognize those biases in myself first. And then I began to recognize them in other people too. I said, hey, these miracles are actually not happening. These answered prayers are actually not happening. And in fact, it can make people very callous sometimes, which I think I might get to that later in the discussion. So when I began to put all these things together around July 2018, I began to see that, hey, this whole Christianity thing doesn't make sense anymore. Now, the thing is, at the time, I was a very strict monotheist, and not just a strict monotheist, but a very strict Christian monotheist. In other words, I believe that only the God of the Bible is real. And if the God of the Bible is not real, then there is no other God that is real. So I didn't go from Christian theism to deism, then to atheism. I went straight from Christian theism to atheism. Because to me, it was kind of like, if the, it, it's all or nothing. Okay, is someone saying something? Where you All right, so basically, that was how I switched. Um, all right, so that was how I switched from Christian to I'm here. Sorry, Bill, I'm here. So I think uh, it was, I, it was just, yeah, I'm here. Please go ahead. All right, so basically, all right, thank you. So, um, so basically that was it. There were, there were other things too. There were other questions I had, but because of time, I don't want to take the entire time so that Tiba can also talk. So basically that was it. I had issues with division in Christian circles. I had issues with Bible contradictions. I had issues with you know, evolution and Christianity. I had issues with miracles and answered prayers. And then there were other issues by the sideboard. When I started to pile everything up, I just saw that I didn't buy this anymore. So I began to pray. 
like, God, I'm losing my faith. Help me out. Please help me. Like, I prayed that prayer for a while. But after I did, nothing actually came out of it. And I just said, you know what? Maybe this guy doesn't really care about me. So I just left the whole thing. And from there, it was very obvious to me, at least, that um, the whole thing wasn't really making any sense anymore. I told a number of people about this. Friends, they sent me resources. They sent me apologetics videos, some of which I knew about even before I became an atheist, while I was still a Christian, I knew about them. But when I went through all those videos and everything, they just didn't make any sense to me anymore, you know, the way they were presenting the case. And that was basically how I fell away in quotes. So I guess I'll stop here for now so that other people can speak as well. Um, I think I'm just going to go straight into uh, like some of my questions. Um, okay. So the first question I'd like to ask is that, um, so uh, I'll start with GD this time. Um, so what do you think is the best argument for God, right? And why do you think it fails? Your best argument, you think the best argument for theism, and then why do you think that argument fails? Okay. Um, if I were to pick what I would consider to be the best argument for theism, for me, it would be the argument from personal experience. Um, because, I mean, what exactly could be more obvious than a personal experience? In fact, when I, for me, when I, when I was going to deconvert, personal experience was like my last resort. That was what I actually prayed for. Because if I had personal experience, basically all the other things I had, all the other issues, contradictions, blah, 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 all those things would disappear if I actually had a personal experience, but it wasn't there. So I think the argument from personal experience is the best kind of argument. Now, the reason why I think it's the best, or I, I don't want to use the word best, because best makes it look like oh, all the others are good. This one is just the best. I'd say it's the least least worst, if, if I could use that term. It's the least bad, um, if I could put it that way. Um, and, and the reason why I think so is because of the nature of subjective experience. Um, subjective experiences are necessarily personal. And by because of that, they are necessarily unfalsifiable, irrefutable in that sense. Basically, the way you, you're going to convince someone who has a personal experience of God that their experience was false is if you can convince them that Maybe they were insane or they were delusional or something like that. And virtually almost anyone is not going to want to accept that claim. Now, the reason why I think this argument fails is for, I, I think it fails for two reasons. Number one, while I agree that the fact that it is necessarily subjective is a strength for it, I would also say it's a weakness for it. Because in my opinion, the fact that it's necessarily subjective means that you can't use it to convince other people on a on an objective basis, I should say. So that's the first weakness of the argument. Whenever people present me with an argument from personal experience, I just tell them, you know what? I can't refute your personal experience, but that experience is subjective to you. If you want it to be convincing to me as well, then I have to have that same experience. And then that's when I can be convinced. Then another reason, which is more or less like tied to the first one is that, if you tell me that God is omnipotent, omniscient, and all-loving, and he wants to engage in relationship with every person, then 
I can also conclude that based on the fact that I have not had a personal experience of God, that means I can reasonably conclude that God does not exist. Now, you can say, hey, that doesn't matter. I mean, you don't know everybody I know. Maybe there are some people that I don't know that you know and you know, stuff like that. And I was, I was simply answer and say, okay, well, but those people are not supposed to be all loving. They're not supposed to want a relationship with everybody. And even if they are all loving, they are not all powerful. So for an all powerful, all knowing and all loving God, there should be absolutely no reason why it cannot give me a personal experience that I can't you know, detect in a way that would be able to say this is an actual personal experience of God. Now, the second reason, which I think is more or less a weaker reason than the first one I just said now, why I think personal experience fields is that it varies from culture to culture and it's usually tied to cultural training. For example, if you've been trained in Christian faith, you're more likely to have a personal experience of things that align with your religion. Even if you are a Muslim that grew up in maybe the West or something like that, you are far more likely to have an experience of Jesus or something like that because of the fact that you've been exposed to that information ahead of time. So um, usually it's, I see it as people's minds just doing things on them. I've, I've had this experience before and I could go into details of that experience and why I think it actually proves that um, people claiming that they hear from God or that they saw God are actually just playing the things that are already in their mind. I could go into details of that, but because of time, I think I'll just stop it for now. So for me, I think the argument from personal I, 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 experience I, I, is the... You mind, can you go argument. just highlight on that experience, right? that supposed financial experience of God? <laughs> just okay. for like a minute or two. Yeah. All right, okay. So let me, let me just quickly try to summarize. So I had two very vivid experiences that I can remember well. I had others too, but I can remember these too well. One was in 2009 when I was praying in my room about, you know, God, um, please... I feel like I'm not growing spiritually. I want to get better and all that. And I heard an audible voice that said, loud and clear in this words, this exact word. It said, spiritual maturity is gradual. That was what I heard. Spiritual maturity is gradual. And someone talking. Okay, all right. So I heard those words exactly. Spiritual maturity is gradual. In fact, it was so it was so audible that I stood up from my knees where, where I was praying. And I was looking around like, is that someone else in the room with me? It was so obvious like that someone was speaking. So I took that as a voice of God. That was in 2009. Now in 2014, <laughs> I was on my balcony in my house and I was praying and reading the Bible. I was praying and reading the Bible and I was reading Romans chapter five Romans is one of the it's basically my best book in the bible so i was reading romans five again that day and i got to verse 10 um that says but if we yeah, i i can't remember exactly how he says it now but it says something about that if we have been reconciled to god by the death of his son much more will be saved by his life something like that and while I was there, I had a vivid visual experience. Like I saw Jesus on the cross. I saw myself at the foot of the cross, Jesus on the cross. I saw all his wounds, you know, him on the cross, his side pierced and all those things. I had like a very vivid experience of that. And
exactly how I heard it. Although I'm paraphrasing a little bit anyway, but that was exactly how I heard it. Something like the revelation of me that anyone can ever have is a revelation of my love for them. That was what I heard that time. So now, from this vantage point that I am at now, I look at those two experiences. And what is very obvious to me right now is that the things I heard were actually in line with the theological paradigm I was working in at each of those times. For example, when I heard spiritual maturity is gradual in 2009, I could never have heard that in 2014. Well, don't let me say I could never. Let me just say, I most probably would not have heard that in 2014. Why? Because as of 2014, I had had a different view of what spiritual maturity is. I didn't think spiritual maturity is something that you aspire to by your works or something like that. I, I thought as of 2014 that it was something that God gives to you by grace. You know, like when you're filled with the Holy Ghost, I mean, you're already mature in the spirit, you know, going by what Galatians 4 says about the hair is, as long as it remains a child, is under tutors and all that. And then when he's, when he's all grown, you bring him into the um, you, you take him away from the schoolmaster. I'm yeah. using that as an analogy to explain that while we were under the law, we were children, but when we came under grace, we became mature, something like that. So that was now my view of spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity was more like being under the gospel of grace. So it wasn't that what I heard in 2009 wasn't something I could have heard in 2014 because I had completely different theological paradigms I was working in at each time. So that gave me the hint that, hey, it was my, it was what I knew about theology manifesting itself in my brain in an audible voice and me taking that and thinking, oh, this is God speaking to me when it was just my mind telling me things that I already knew ahead of time. So basically that's it. Let me not um, waste too much time on that. So basically that's, that, that, that was just, that's it. So guys, can you hear me? Yeah, I do. Okay. Yeah, I can hear you. Thank you. Um, so, T-Bag, let's yeah. hear you. All right. I'll, I'll say what I think the best. No, I'll use best. I'll use Jai's word. Um, the least worst. Yeah, I'll use that phrase. Of the argument so far is the theological argument. I already told you I kind of became a deist at a point. It was because the theological arguments, I think, made sense to me. At that time, I wasn't, I hadn't really read enough like science materials on the subject. So the theological arguments, that's the argument of design. Like there's, there's supposed to be a first cause. Everything in the universe points to a designer. And science hadn't answered some questions I would have loved to get answers for. So I felt like, hey, like this, this argument makes sense. I mean, who created all this? But later on, I realized that no, even calling the things we see in the universe, the things we perceive in the universe as creations, is, is, is even not logical. Because if you say it was created or it's a creation, that means you need to be able to prove that it was actually created by whoever. So it is not right to even call it a creation. The things we see in the universe are existing because they exist, because we, we see them. It is just a proof of its existence. It is not a proof of creation. But when I was deconverting, that actually made a lot of sense to me. 
So anytime I see like people come up with that argument, I kind of laugh. But I think it's, it's the least worst of the argument for theism. Actually, it was supposed to be for deism. I don't know how it landed in theism's favor. So when I watch like apologetics and debates with other atheists, like between a theist and an atheist, I see them bringing up a theological argument. And I'm like, huh, this is supposed to be for deism. So it's like, as of now, like the, the, theistic apologists do not really argue from the Bible. I don't know if you watch if you watch recent debates. They don't really argue from the Bible. They argue based on um, science, um, the designer. They don't really argue for the validity of the Bible. Basically, I'll say that would be my least uh, worst argument for theism so far. And the other one would be personal experience, obviously. Because there are, lot, there are billions of people who believe in gods in this world. So if I walk up to you and I'm like, I had, an ex- I had a personal experience of my God being real. As, no matter how like, atheistic I am as of now, I wouldn't invalidate your experience. I wouldn't say you are lying or you're a liar. No, I wouldn't do that. But in as much as I wouldn't invalidate your experience, you need to be able to prove that in fact or indeed the experience I had was influenced by my God or I saw my God or my God spoke to me. Because if we ask for the validity of all these audible sounds people claim to hear in their minds from their gods, I think we wouldn't be here at this point. Because we had top pastors claiming they drink tea with God and they shook hands with God like a whole lot of gibberish here and there. So the validity for that, personally, I won't tell you a liar or you're lying, but I will really find it difficult to accept that um, your God is real because he says so. And they'll come up with, they'll come up with, they'll come up with, um, but you were not there. What I saw wasn't what you saw. What I heard, you were not there. And I'm like, okay, if I'm not there, that is why it has a name. That is why it is called personal experience. So if you are trying to use your personal experience as proof of your personal God to be the ultimate tool, I think it, it wouldn't make any sense because the name even shoots you. It makes you shoot yourself in the foot. Personal experience, you are supposed to keep it personal. You can't walk up to me and tell me you had a personal experience of your God. So I have to believe that it is true and your God is real. So these are the two like least worst, least worst arguments for theism. And I already told you, if any of it is supposed to, is, is, is able to prove the existence of any God, I, for one, a, a believer of enough evidence and enough data, I, I would stop being an atheist, but my contempt for organized religion will still remain with me because the systems are still there. The religious systems are still there. We experience them every day. The oppressive structures, we experience right. them every day. So, right. sure. so let, me really ask, let, let me ask a question, Tibak. Um, do you, have you had uh, any form of experience, uh, unquote, personal experience? What yeah, I would say 
I'll say um, euphoria. There's this thing when I was a teen. You see, I told you I love music. So anytime I was in church and the songs were playing, like the music were going out, when, when a lot of people gather and then begin to sing one song, there's this thing Christians call the presence of God. I don't know if, if you ever heard it. There's this thing called the presence of God. So in, in my, like personally, I would put that one as, 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 as my personal experience. So like I experienced so much euphoria in my mind and I felt like if this is the pres- presence of God, then it literally proves that indeed or in fact there's a God. But in my study, I've, I've learned a little about neuroscience. I mean, not really deep into it, but I know what euphoria is now. So until I had, until I exposed myself to different information and I realized that, okay, what I, I, I saw to be proof of my God was actually euphoria. Like, you can even experience it when you are not singing songs pertaining to a God. I mean, in Ghana, we have this thing called Jama. We, we have, um, they are not mainstream songs, but then we, I, I would say they are kind of traditional songs cooked together by a group of people, not even musicians. And we gather and sing them together. No matter what we are singing to, who we are singing to, or what we are singing about, when we come together and we begin singing it, it creates this euphoric atmosphere for everybody. And the experience becomes like real to you and you, it, it will make you think what you are doing is actually real. So if this experience is, 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 is done towards a God or is done in the name of a God, you obviously are going to think that the God is present, so he's existent, but that's it. Thank you, thank you so much. All right, so quickly, uh, let's move to some of the um, main I'm really enjoying this conversation. I, I hope we give ourselves an hour more. Okay, so let's quickly move into the that's a main pillars of the Christian faith, right? So we're going to begin with Jesus, the person of Jesus. Um, I want to solicit your thoughts on Jesus. Do you think he actually existed? Do you think there's a historical Jesus? Um, what do you make of the person Jesus, right? So his life. And probably we talked about Saturday's with the resurrection. Take it off from there. So I'll start from here. Okay, am I going first? Yes, you are going first. Okay. Um, Jesus. He's a nice guy. He was a nice guy. <laughs> so, um, well, for me, I don't think I have any problems with the idea that Jesus existed. I think there are some atheists out there who think there was no Jesus and, you know, Jesus was just like a fabrication of, um, you know, a, a, a product of Jewish fantasy in a sense. Uh, I think that theory is too extreme. And I've heard, I've actually exposed myself to a little bit of what they say and how they say it. And even though there's, there's a bit of, um, should I say credibility to it, because there are some things I actually share with them on, for example, I, I, I would agree with some of the mythicists that 
there was a lot of syncretism going on. Syncretism is when you when you take um, different aspects of different religions and then you put them together to form a bigger religion. I think that would have happened in the first century, um, especially since the, since there was a mixture between the Roman government, you know, sort of like should I say colonizing um, Palestine at the time. And, you know, the Palestine being under Roman rule, I should say, and, you know, the Romans bringing in their gods, exposing Jews to them and all that. So a lot of ideas floating around. I can agree with that, that there is a possibility that could, there could have been elements of those foreign religions affecting the way the, the, the already evolving view of who the Messiah was supposed to be um, among Christians. Nevertheless, I think it's too extreme to go to the point and say that Jesus never existed because I think there's even though it's not very strong and you know it's not as indubitable as it looks the evidence is still good enough to warrant believe that there was a real person whose name was Jesus for example um, we know that he had a brother whose name was James and that James was mentioned in both in the Bible and in in Josephus in I think um, one of the annals of Josephus also mentions James, the brother of Jesus as well. So um, Tacitus also mentions Jesus as having been crucified during the time of um, Pilate. So I think the evidence is there that there was a real person named Jesus. Of course, I don't think he did any miracle. I don't think he walked on water. I don't think he multiplied five loaves of bread and two fish into 5,000 or whatever it is. And I most certainly don't think that he rose from the dead. Now, those are separate issues that we can talk about, but that he's a real person, I don't think it even matters whether he was a real person or not. Because, I mean, several people existed in history, so it's not such a big deal. Jesus could have existed as a human being who never did any miracles, whom people just built legends around, and he wouldn't threaten my case at all. So um, for me, I think I'm very happy to conclude that Jesus most probably existed as a real person in first century Palestine. I see. All right, so T-Bag. Yeah, hello, Bill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bill. Can go ahead. Yeah, so um, the character of Jesus, I... <laughs> that was also a, tilt, a tilting point for me. The cult of Jesus as portrayed by Christians or as portrayed in the Bible is, 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 is to me, not a reliable one. I mean, in the first century, there must have been a probability that a guy named Jesus actually was roaming around Palestine. I, I, I can take that because it's a name, it's a common name. I mean, it was a common name in the first century, Jesus. And I think it was, it was even Yeshua, it wasn't Jesus. I mean, Jesus is like a Latinized version of it. So it was Yeshua. And I agree that such a character would have been walking around in the first century. But my issue is how he was portrayed to have been conceived by a young lady or a young woman, how she is supposedly taken as the Messiah the Jews were expecting and his divinity. 
And when you go into history, Jared, um, Julius spoke about Tacitus and then Josephus. But in Josephus' writing, the antiquities of the Jews, the, the original copy of Josephus' writing, some historians have actually said that the character, the, the character of Jesus Christ performing miracles here and there, you know, walking on water, multiplying food, all those things didn't happen. But then you know how Josephus ended up in the Roman Empire. He was actually captured during the first Roman Jewish war, I think in 70 AD by Vespasius and then Titus. So after he was captured, he was, he was like multilingual and he could write and all. So I think he, he, was, he was able to put down things about the character. So in as much as I would like to write it off, I would say a character called Yeshua could have existed in the first century. But the attributes given to him is what I think isn't right. Because when you read the Messianic prophecies in the Bible, as professed by Daniel and Co., and when you read about the descendant of Jesus, where the Messiah is supposed to come from, from David's family to Solomon's line, all those things, you realize that the accounts given to him, the accounts so far, aren't reliable at all. Even when you check in the Bible, you get me. Even when you check in the Bible, he doesn't. He doesn't. He hasn't fulfilled any of the prophecies from his birth to his kinship to whatever. So I think it was more political for later Christians to develop this um, feel of him. Um, um, I think uh, fulfilling these prophecies in the spiritual realm or fulfilling these prophecies spiritually. One is the temple. It was professed by one of the prophets that the Messiah will come and bring down the temple and rebuild it in three days. Physical, like physically, the temple was to be brought up physically. But in the Bible, church, Jesus actually brought up the temple, but it was spiritual. So when, when I, I consider all this, I don't think it's reliable for me. And even, even if I, I, I put myself on the line and I'm like, okay, let's say the guy existed. Let's just say he existed. What does it prove that he was actually the son of God? No, it doesn't prove it. it proved, he existing proves that he existed. It doesn't prove he was the son of God. And his name mentioned in historical writings by later Christians. My problem with Josephus is even, Josephus was born two years after Jesus' supposed death. So if Josephus was born in 837 and Jesus was Jesus died in 833, that's like four years. What, on what grounds did Josephus stand on to write about the existence of a guy who died before he was even born? That is a question I always ask. Was it hearsay? Obviously, it means he was told about it. And you know, you know how evidence goes. I mean, if you hear something, you are trying, if you are trying to check, test the validity or the plausibility of hearsay, it's, it's best to just approximate it to zero, especially when it comes to these religious fantasies, these legends, and cool. So that's, that's my view on Jesus. So it will be, it will be extreme to say that a, a name or a person with the name Yeshua didn't exist in the first century. It's like saying 
a guy like um, Kwame didn't exist in Ghana in the 15th century. You get it. It wouldn't really make sense. So it's just right to see a character like that existed. But to see that the character with all these characteristics in the things written about him existed, I don't think it's a reliable author. So that's, that's my view on Jesus. There's a central figure. Thank you. Right. So we're going to tackle the the resurrection, right? Okay. So I, I know if it be right, just just give our thoughts on the issue of the resurrection, right? I think it's the okay. I'll, I'll be quick about it. Yeah. Of the come again. I said I'll be quick about it. So. Yeah, yeah. So T-Bag, you start first, and then you go to GD. Like, what do you think about the whole resurrection thing? Why do you think it it doesn't hold for you? Because obviously, if it holds for you, you'd be a believer in Jesus Christ. So why why does it hold for you? The issue of the resurrection is the Bible says that um, if the Christ didn't rise or wasn't risen, then anything we believed in, every, anything we believed in so far is, is moved. So the issue of resurrection, I mean, we are told that a guy with all these divine characteristics came into the world to save us from sin. He died and resurrected. You, let's see that he, this character resurrected. How does it prove that his resurrection means that he is the son of God? I, I don't know if you get me. Do you, do you get me? Like, they said a guy resurrected, fine. But he resurrecting only proves that there's a guy who rose from the dead. But if you are trying to draw a parallel with his, his, with his resurrection and then he being the son of God, or he saving us from sins. I don't think it, it would really make any logical sense here. So, but with the issue of resurrection, there are so many contradictions in the Bible. The, the Gospels don't even agree on his resurrection. And the one that, that threw me off like totally was how he was told to resurrect and then the tenants occupying the graves in Jerusalem at the time also resurrected with him. So it was like zombies like a group of zombies roaming jerusalem at the time at the time of jesus's supposed resurrection like do do people really believe this like everybody rose up and then they were with jesus they all resurrected like it doesn't hold first of all what is dead is dead so claiming that what someone died and resurrected is, is, is dumbfounding. So you need to like provide outrageous evidence for this claim. And funny enough, it's, it's just the gospels proclaiming that and no proofs have surfaced so far. So I don't think that the resurrection till holds for me. Yeah, that's okay. it basically. All right, All right cool. Jide, the resurrection, your, your thoughts? Okay, so um, the thing is, we how we approach this basically is we look at the prior probability and then we look at the evidence and then we update our probability. That's what they call um, Bayesian reasoning, you know, based on um, a mathematician who 
proposed the method called um, Bayes. That was in the 17th or 18th century or so. Uh, so it's basically a way of you know calculating probabilities for events and um, stuff like that. So basically, this is how I look at it. What is the prior probability of a resurrection? I, I think. Hello. Yeah, am I? I think you're breaking a little. Hello. Did yeah, you speak? I can hear you. Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, Tibak, I can hear you. I think we lost GD. Okay, I think we lost him because he's, he's joining his again. Name. Yeah, I think we lost him. Okay, we can go on when it comes. Yeah. Go back. Hello, GD. Sorry, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear yeah, you. Can. He's back. Sure. Okay, I'm sorry. A call came in on my phone, so I just had to quickly handle that. All right, so um, as I was saying, we look at the prior probability and then we look at the posterior probability. That's the prior, the probability of the resurrection happening before we look at any evidence at all. And then the probability that we have to change our beliefs in one direction or the other based on the evidence that we look at. So the very first line of evidence, and then sorry, the very first thing to note is that I think every one of us here will agree, whether Christian or atheist or whatever it is, um, we would agree that resurrections are not very common events. They don't <laughs> they basically don't happen. I think I think um, we can all agree from that level. Now, um, when we begin to factor in other lines of evidence, for example, the Christian will say, well, God exists, um, for example. So that would factor into their own background knowledge as well. So I guess a Christian might say a resurrection is possible. An atheist might say resurrections don't happen based on what we see you know, in our everyday experience and all that. So that might be a little bit difficult to decipher but then when we look at the evidence that's available as well i think the evidence is not enough for us to update our beliefs in the direction that the resurrection happened now what's the evidence that apologists usually cite sometimes they talk about the empty tomb sometimes they talk about the post-mortem appearances as the post-resurrection the supposed post-resurrection appearances um, and then they also talk about the fact that the disciples were very firm in their beliefs and all that. So talking about the empty tomb, which for me, I think is the most empirically investigable issue there. Um, first of all, there, there is a high probability that Jesus wasn't buried in the tomb. And that's because um, based on the works of you know, several scholars, they agree that most crucifixion victory, victims were thrown into unmarked graves, marked, um, you know, public graves like that. They weren't given 
befitting burials, like the kind that Jesus was supposed to have had in the Bible. So we look at that line of evidence and we see that there's a huge preponderance in the line, in the direction of Jesus being having been thrown in a mass grave, something like that. Um, you know, people now point to and say, okay, well, there's Joseph of Arimathea who was, you know, he was a follower of Jesus, who was a rich guy and all that. And he could afford a tomb. And if he really likes Jesus, then he could have helped him out and all that. But I have problems with that. For example, the town, the so-called town of Arimathea is actually not known to have existed in first century Palestine in that particular setting. So, and this is one argument that the mythicists also use. that Arimathea is more or less like a middle place. Uh, you know, people often associate it with Rama. Rama is... Um, and there's a prophecy in the book of Isaiah that, you know, when Jesus was going to be killed, it wasn't talking about Jesus anyway, but let me just say that just for the sake of the argument that when Jesus was going to be killed, there's going to be a Rachel in Rama or something like that who was going to cry because her children were going to be killed as well. So um, people often say, oh, well, that Rama is what Arimathea is. But actually that association didn't come until the fourth century, the third or fourth century. That's when people started saying, oh, Rama is... Arimathea. Nobody actually knew what Arimathea was. So who is this mysterious Joseph, who is also a member of the Sanhedrin? So it's giving, it's, it, I mean, it's been suggested that that's more or less like a mythical element being thrown in there. So there's a whole lot that could be said more on that, but I think the empty tomb is not really as guaranteed as some apologists try to make it sound. And then you talk about the appearances you know that people had i think those appearances were mostly hallucinatory um even though you know the gospels make it sound like they had actual encounters with jesus um i think they were mostly hallucinatory now people often cite uh what's his name paul reporting that oh there were 500 people at one time that saw jesus and all that i don't actually buy it that i think it's also part of the legend that developed that okay 500 people at one time saw him it's often said that what was written in first Corinthians 15 is like an early creed of some sort that had been passed down personally i'm not convinced by that because i've read the text several times and based on some of the greek resources that i have i'm not proficient in greek i only know a very little bit of it but from the little bit i read you know using strong's concordance and some other things like that it doesn't really look like a creed to me, but let's even say it's a creed. Where does the creed stop? Does it stop at verse five? Does it stop at verse seven? Does it stop at verse 11? So where exactly do we draw the line of where this creed comes from? Um, for me, it just doesn't make any sense. We can't, there's no verification at all of any 500 people having seen Jesus. So none of them spoke. We don't know the names of any one of them. Now, people often say that, oh, Paul was saying that because he was trying to tell people to go and investigate. But actually, it wasn't that simple. Because first of all, um, the way documents were written back then, they were meant to be read out in the church. And secondly, you're talking about people who were living at the time in Jerusalem. Achaia, which was in Greece, was some distance away from um, from Jerusalem. So it's not like any one of them could have just gone there. These were people who were under Roman rule. There were restrictions on how they could move around. And then there were also literacy um, barriers and different other things. So it's not something that was so easy that oh, the board is saying this so that people can go and investigate. I don't really buy into that as well. Um, 
People talk about poor, poor land and post-mortem appearance, so that's very difficult to explain. I agree that it is difficult to explain um, you know, the appearances of poor, but I don't think it's impossible because um, have grief-induced hallucinations as well. This is also present in the literature. If you, if you read in literature, people can have grief-induced hallucinations, and those kinds of hallucinations can actually be so convincing that they can cause radical changes in people's lives. So that also happens. And then people talk about how um, the apostles were willing to die for their beliefs and all that. In the Bible, there's only one person whom we know that was killed, that was, so to speak, martyred. And that's James in Acts 12. And he wasn't killed because of his faith, per se. He wasn't killed because he was defending the resurrection. He was killed for political reasons. Um, uh, uh, Herod, at the time, wanted to move against the Christians. He just wanted to satisfy you know, the larger Roman Republic or whatever it is. And then he, he picked up James and then he killed him. And when he saw that, oh, people really liked that, then he picked Peter as well. And then there's a miracle story that was told in the Bible. But the point here is that we don't have, apart from Stephen, and Stephen was not part of the 12 um, or the 11, as we might say. So we don't really have any record of anyone like that. Now, there are other, um, I, I've heard some apologists like um, Dr. Sean McDowell, who said that um, there are, very reliable sources that tell us that Paul was martyred for his faith, Peter was martyred for his faith, and then there are also other legends about Andrew and some other first century apostles like that. But these are actually, they're not that strong if you really look at them very well. They're just, you know, basically things that are based on tradition most of the time and not on something very textually sound. So when we look at um, the beliefs, oh, sorry, when we look at the evidence that are supposed to back up this belief in the resurrection. I don't think they are sufficient for us to update our belief in the direction that there was a real resurrection because we have more plausible explanations, more plausible naturalistic explanations for what actually happened, I should say. Um, so for me, I don't think the resurrection is something that should convince anybody. And as Tibag also said, even if there was truly a resurrection, how does that connect to Jesus being the son of God. I mean, Lazarus was raised from the dead. The daughter of Jairus was raised from the dead. The son of the widow of nine was raised from the dead. Um, Elijah raised someone from the dead in the Old Testament. Elijah raised two people from the dead. In fact, the bones, the dead, the carcasses of Elisha raised somebody else from the dead um, in the Old Testament. So what's there's, it doesn't seem to be so much of a big deal. Um, people, resurrections were very common, and it wasn't only in Christianity, there were also some other religions as well that had beliefs. Hello. I'm here, I'm here. I hope you can hear me. Yeah, I do. You can continue. Okay, all right. So, all right. Um, so basically what I was just saying, I was just trying to ramble, but I don't think the evidence is sufficient for us to have, um, you know, any confidence direction. All right, great. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, Bill. All right, cool, great. All right, so um, I think I have two more questions. Uh, yeah, I can hear I just, you. I just choose one, right? Um. Let's talk about death, right? Um, 
the question starts with two things. Um, how do you find meaning uh, in this life personally? Like, what, what, what's your vision for meaning? Do you think your life has a meaning? Do you think there is meaning to life? And as well, um, when you die, do you have hope for anything at all? Like, after death, like, as compared to the response creation or Christian believer or Christian being, that something lies there for us after we pass on from this life. Uh, what's, what's your take on those two things? So, your life on earth, what's meaning for you? And the second thing is that, like, what, 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 what's in your mind, your mind's eye? How do you envision the whole idea of death? And I'll start with T-Bag and then GD closes it in for us. All right. So, um, on the issue of having a meaning in life and then having maybe hope after death, I, I always see. I always say that there's ultimately no meaning to life. I mean, we live to die. <laughs> so every, 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 the everyday life is like um, trying to cheat death. The drugs we discover, we produce, the clothes we wear to show us from harsh weather conditions, the cars we drive for safety, you know, all those kind of things. I just, to me, I just a way of cheating death because we live to die. But when it comes to meaning, I always go by Nice's quote. He was like, um, to live is to suffer. But to find meaning, um, am I getting it right? He said, to live is to suffer. I, I don't think I'm, I'm getting it. But he's, he basically tried to mean that Living is suffering, and if you are able to find meaning, yeah, it means yeah, enjoying life or something like that. So when it comes to the meaning to life, I think it's, it's much more subjective. Our interest, our the things we are able to perceive, our societies, the things we think makes us happy, our family, our friends, our emotional bonds, all those kind of things, I think gives meaning to life. So in my view, I think I just have. Um, one life to live, which is this one. So I try to make the best out of it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm the happiest person on, on, on the earth or I aspire to be the happiest person. But I mean, trying to get some meaning out of this life I'm living is, is, is what um, I, I hinge my, my whole life on. So I just try to... Um, if, if the right thing is supposed to be done, I do it. If, if it's wrong, it's, it's, if it's empathetically not right, I just don't do it. I just try not to hurt other people. Me, to me, that's, that's what gives me meaning. But when we talk of the issue of having hope after death, that's like the basic afterlife. We have this thing called the afterlife. Like, the reincarnation is one of them. And, and meeting up with their various gods to have fun, families and friends. <laughs> I always say that, like, they are all euphemisms. Even with the issue of funerals, I, I always say it's, it's, it's like a euphemism for mystic disposal. You get it? Like, when, when you check, when you do a reality check, you realize that it's, it's not really. It doesn't give you any meaning. What is dead is dead. That is all. 
But when it comes to deriving meaning of the life we live, because the universe doesn't make sense and it runs its course anyway, you can't change. You literally can't change anything about the universe. So we just try our best to cheat death every day of our lives. And our bonds, our emotional bonds, the things I mentioned, might give us a bit of meaning to life after all the happiness it gives us. But ultimately, ultimately ultimately what is that is dead so i think that's my view on the meaning to life and hope for the future after death so i'm not looking up to meet up with any god to be singing praises or to be fucking virgins here and there to do what <laughs> <laughs> like the, the islam heaven they have 72 virgins they promised they are subscribers sent two virgins the meals that they will get into heaven and they will be fucking these virgins which doesn't make any sense because <laughs> well they are all made but people believe it anyway and they live their lives as if when they die they are going to get them so i i the issue of the afterlife is even proclaimed by people who never died before proclaiming it so i don't think it's anything plausible to tie my emotions to or believe in any of them. So that, that's what I think of it. Thank you, thank you. All right, Gide, let's go. So, um, T-Bag, yeah, T-Bag, yeah, I think you forgot that, I think you forgot that you're on a, you're on a Christian, <laughs> a Christian, um, you know, ministry channel, because you were using those big, big efforts like that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was just, oh, yeah, I, I, I mean, that was, that, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 observation. I, I don't know. I don't um, know if the hosts have any issue with that. But okay, but it's fine. So um on the issue of meaning, meaning and purpose and all that, I mean I don't know. I mean people say stuff like you know, atheism leads to depression, leads to nihilism, this this leads to that. This has never been my own personal reality. I'm not I'm not discounting the experiences of other people. There might be atheists who have felt that way in one way or another. I'm not saying that such atheists do not exist. But for me personally, I don't think I've ever felt as free as I do and as, did I say, happy as I do right now. Because many of my issues that I had as a Christian, I still have them now. As a matter of fact, I think I have, I've cut out some of the issues that I used to have, the issues about, am I interpreting the Bible correctly? Am I sure that, sorry, excuse me, I don't know why, I'm, I'm a little bit gassy right now, but okay, yeah, so it's just like, am I interpreting the Bible correctly, am I not misleading people, what about people who are going to go to hell, you know, I had all these things that were worrying me at that time, that were, that were, that were bothering me, I should say, and some of them drove me to the place of, almost the place of depression, I also had issues with, you know, okay, um, for example, I wasn't in a relationship then, and it was more or less like, the things just weren't working for me in that line and i was like is that god doesn't like me is that something is going on i mean all those things like that caused me depression at the time and when i got out of christianity they were still there <laughs> but you know it, it's not the kind of depression of you know, something clinical something perennial it was just something transient that i had at the time and all that but when i when i let it go i totally became more deeper because i understood that hey i'm not special 
life doesn't the universe doesn't owe me a purpose the universe doesn't owe me anything because i'm not I, I, I was actually thinking recently because i was like why would anyone think that being an atheist has to lead you to nihilism and i was like okay let's flip it around theism gives you something it gives you a sense of meaning and purpose and you feel that when theism is not there then you don't have a sense of meaning and purpose. Okay, so why should that be depressing for you? It's depressing for you because you think you are entitled to some cosmic purpose. You think you are entitled to some universal cosmic designer's purpose. You know, his attention, his care, and his love. Now, why did I come to that conclusion? Like many years ago, I learned a certain principle which I've been applying to my life and it has been working very well for me. It's very simple, it says, expectation is the mother of disappointment. Basically, if you are not expecting something, you won't get disappointed when you don't get it. Um, this is not to, let me, I'm a Chelsea fan, so let me throw a small dig here. Look at Arsenal fans, for example, you know, they're not expecting to win the title, so if they don't win it, <laughs> <laughs> it's not a big deal for them because I mean, uh, we're just Arsenal. Let's just try to make the Europa League or something. <laughs> so, yeah, I can say that because I know that the host and my co co guest are Chelsea fans. So let's let's take a slight dig at Arsenal in that sense. So yeah, but the the point I'm trying to make here is that when you don't have a grandiose expectation, you won't have a grandiose disappointment. Uh, yeah. feeling of being let down, feeling of depression. So the reason why you feel depressed that you don't have a cosmic purpose is because you are expecting a cosmic purpose. It's because you are expecting the universe or some God or some universal force to give you some purpose. But why do you think the universe should give you that? Do you think you're that special? Because one of the things that my atheism has taught me is that I'm not really that special. I could be dead tomorrow and the universe would keep on operating the way that yeah, it operates. Running its course. It's not, yeah. it's not, it's not gonna it's not gonna miss me. It's not like I'm gonna have any profound cosmic impact on the world. And I'm not expecting that as well. So why should I think that that should cause me depression? It's just the way things are. I'm not special. And because I'm not special, the universe doesn't owe me any special purpose. And because I am not expecting any special purpose from the universe, I'm not depressed when I realize that there's no special purpose coming from the universe. It's only people who think that the universe owes them a purpose that gets depressed over that. Now, that's just what I wanted to say. And that's the reason why my own atheism doesn't cause me depression. It doesn't cause me um, nihilism or whatever it is that people say. Or, or pessimism or whatever it is that people say. But by the way, there's a huge difference between nihilism and pessimism. Nihilism is not pessimism. Nihilism simply says that there is no objective meaning or value in things, whether those things are done for good intent or for bad intent. Whether you choose to murder someone or whether you choose to be kind to someone, both of them are equally valueless to the nihilist. So pessimism is more like the world is hopeless, the universe is going to be destroyed, there's no hope for the future. So what's the point in doing anything right now? That's what pessimism is. That's the difference between pessimism and nihilism. So the reason why, why I said that is that people often think that if you're a nihilist, then you must be a pessimist. That's not necessarily true. There are different ideas. So I just wanted to get that across. So now onto the issue of purpose. I don't, like I said, it doesn't make me depressed that I don't have a purpose, but then 
I think I need to flip the question back to, of, of course, I know you're the host. I'm not asking you the question. I'm just asking you rhetorically. Why should we think that the fact that there's going to be an afterlife, as is in the Christian worldview, there's going to be some kind of eternal life where we're all in heaven, and we're worshiping forever and ever and ever, and we're all in heaven. <laughs> why exactly... Why exactly should that be appealing? Why exactly should that give my life a sense of purpose? Like, why should that make me change whatever it is that I'm doing now? As a matter of fact, I think that if we really took Christianity seriously for what it says, then most of the things that we do in life are still valueless. For example, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, um, the preacher, as it was said, some people say Solomon, I don't think it's Solomon, but the name that is put there is the preacher. Now, what the preacher said there is that everything is valueless. Everything under the sun is valueless. Even given the fact that God still exists, everything is still valueless. Now, what he concluded is that the only thing that really matters is to do what? To fear God and to keep his commandments. That's all. Now, if you read Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, it says, You are worthy, O Lord to receive glory, honor, and power because you have created all things and for your pleasure, they are and were created. So everything in the universe is created for God's pleasure. Things are not valuable in themselves. They are only valuable because they bring pleasure to God, so to speak. Um, so if, if we really take this to its logical conclusion, then what we should be thinking is whatever I am doing right now that is not, so to speak, bringing value to God, or bringing pleasure to God, then that thing is wrong. So if God tells me that I should go and kill the Amalekites, for example, because that brings pleasure to God, then that is the right thing. But that is the most valuable thing for me to do at that particular point, because that's what God has commanded me to do. So in other words, what I'm trying to say here is that theism also gives us an arbitrary foundation for values and for purpose and all that, because basically whatever God says or whatever God plans or whatever God wishes, or whatever God desires, is ultimately what we are supposed to be doing. So for me, that's also depressing, because it means, in a sense, I don't really, even though it, even, even though it looks like I have some agency, but it means I don't really have the kind of agency that I think I do. I am not free. I am still subject to the, the dictatorship of a totalitarian God in that sense. I have to follow his commands, and I have to follow his wish. So if he tells me that I should be nasty towards homosexual people or to try to stop them from living their lives as well as they should, then that is the most valuable thing for me to do at that particular moment. But in fact, it almost means that it doesn't make sense for me to get a job. Why? Because getting a job is mostly for myself. It doesn't really do anything for anyone else in that sense. The only reason, the only reason why I should get a job based on this biblical view, the only reason why I should get a job is so that I can be a source of blessing to other people, so that I can give money to other people, or you know, help the poor, help the needy and all that. Why? Because that is what pleases God, in a sense. So even my very job that I am doing, I'm not doing it because of the value of hard work. I'm not doing it because of the value of being a responsible person in society. I'm doing it because I want to please God, ultimately, because I want to maybe make heaven or avoid hell, or even if I'm not even talking about heaven and hell, just because I want to please God, because I want to please my master, so to speak. So in my mind, I don't see how this is a better grounding for values than the one I've been speaking about 
which is me determining what is valuable or what is not valuable. To me, both of them seem very arbitrary. And one of them can even give more license for people to be evil and wicked in the actual world than we think it can. So for me, that's where I look at the issue of values and ethics and all those things. I'm done. <laughs> what a conversation. Sorry, yeah, I, I, hope. I was trying to unmute myself, but then all right. Thank you okay, guys right. so much. Um I wish you could do this again, probably do a part two or something because there are quite a number of things I want us to tackle. I'm sure we'll do this again. Um thank you so much, GD. Uh, thank you so much, Tibag and Samuel. <laughs> uh, but I'd like to give like a I'm sure there are a lot of believers on this channel right now, a lot of unbelievers too, I guess. Um, so, like your final work, general thoughts about the Christian faith, um, God, and religion in general. So, um, just two minutes each and we go. So, I'll start with T-Bag. All right. I'll, I'll just say, first of all, reason doesn't force, unlike religion. Religion forces. And you, it, it's so hard to separate religion from religious people because at the end of the day, the perpetrators of this like stupid ideology called religion is, is the people who subscribe to it to them. So I'm not I'm not taking out one religion. The ones I've experienced in my setting are irrational and illogical. But then I'm in no position to force anyone to renounce his faith or her faith. I can't do that. So <laughs> reason doesn't force you need to keep asking yourself questions. You need to try and grasp why people call your beliefs irrational and illogical. Because honestly speaking, these are the best adjectives I can use for religion. It makes no sense. It's an oppressive structure. It tries to determine how people should live their lives. And funny enough, a lot of people subscribe to it. That's why I have this conclusion. I say religion is, is, fun, is largely funded by human stupidity. Stupidity in the sense that if humans were more intelligent in this regard, I mean, in the regard of being skeptics about their faith, I don't think we would have been here talking about this. If we are all to um, sit down and assess our faith, ask, ask the necessary questions, we all come to a, a better conclusion. So I'm not asking anyone to subscribe to a teaser, but just assess your faith. And then, yeah. I think that, that would be my last words. Thank you very much, Tibak. Um, You're welcome. Yeah. Okay, so um, I agree with Tibak on, on a lot of things that he just said right now. Um, I, I describe myself as a soft anti-theist, soft anti-theist. Now, um, I think religion is oppressive. I think it can be depressive. I think it can be very discriminatory. I think um, overall, and when I say religion, I'm talking about the religions that I have encountered, mostly Christianity and Islam. I'm not speaking for maybe some very benign religion from the Himalayas or from Papua New Guinea or something like that. I'm talking about the ones that I'm aware of. So, um, I'm a soft anti-theist in the sense that 
I don't think we should be actively pushing people to give up their faith or something like that. But I think what we should do is reason along with people and then let them gradually on their own give up, you know, um, the faith and just see that it doesn't make sense for me to keep believing. Just pre- I, what I try to do, my approach is I try to present the arguments. I try to show them this is why I think you should, I mean, this particular concept of your religion doesn't make any sense. It's um, self-contradictory. It's false or some other reason that I can point out. And then um, I hope that they can listen to it and then through that, come to the conclusion that, hey, you know what, I need to give this up. Um, I think that as long as people cannot, if, if they won't be oppressive in their religion, if they're just going to be on their own and do their thing in private, I think it's fine. People can be religious if they want to. It's a free world. Freedom of religion is a right for everyone. Where I often have a problem is when you try to use your religion to vet what other people do with their lives, um, you know, try to control their lives or whatever it is, that's where the problem comes in. Um, what I'm going to say is, um, you know, just to close, just round up, I'll just encourage everyone to keep um, searching, to keep asking questions. In fact, one of, the, one of the things that I didn't mention this earlier because of time, but one of the things that actually turned me off of Christianity was that I noticed that there was way too much emphasis on people not asking questions, at least in my own Christian circle. There was a lot of, um, you know, subtly trying to tell people, don't ask questions, don't investigate things outside religion, don't go into, don't, don't go too deep into science, because if you do that, it might make you an atheist, and that's a bad thing. And one of the things, I mean, at the initial stage, that looked nice to me, but let's I began to say that, hey, this doesn't actually make sense, because the only people who would say things like this are people who have cult mentality, people who have truths in quotes that they want to protect that they know that if people investigate this thing is going to break apart it's going to fall apart so they're trying to stop people from investigating so that what they are guarding and trying to protect doesn't fall apart and that was one of the things that actually pushed me into studying more and you know getting more knowledge and i'm where i am today and so i i'm I'm usually not surprised when some people say that um god made them an atheist you know when someone says something like thank god i'm an atheist or something because they research the bible well and they research theology well and they see that you know the whole thing just doesn't make any sense so um for me i think i would just keep encouraging people to keep asking questions try to be as unbiased as you can because we all have biases i have my own biases um i have my cognitive biases i have cognitive dissonance i have cherry picking bias i have all those things we all have them there's no there's no superior rationality it's not like atheists are more intelligent than religious people even though there are some studies that show that there are some kinds of intelligence that atheists are more prone to having not because of you know something innate to atheists but because of the way they approach those things um but overall theists are not stupid theists are not dumb theists are not evil people most of them are actually very kind, very nice. It's just that they are victims of childhood indoctrination and respectfully, I would say, um, delusions, especially delusions of grandeur, of self. And I think that's where we need to start from. Get rid of the idea that I am so special that God has to give me some purpose or the universe has to give me some purpose. Get rid of the idea that you are sinful, um, that there's something about you that... Um, needs to be corrected or something like that. You are just human like everyone else. We're all trying to figure out life together. 
And it will be better if we all write this journey together, having fun and doing our critical and rational thinking without us having to put our lives in the hands of non-existent totalitarian gods. So I think that's where I'm going to stop for now. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Ide. Thank you. All right, guys. Um, so I guess we've come to the end of this conversation. Um, so I was going to ask. Yes. Are there are there audience questions? Like, are there people in the audience who may have questions? I don't know. Yeah. If, yeah, if you okay, sure. We can do um, the next fifteen minutes for audience questions, right? So I'm going to allow for um, two questions. Two. So um, the first two two. Show their hands. I will give them the chance to ask a question. So, hello. Right. Sorry, hello. sorry, um, host. Yes. If I, if I may recommend, um, can we not, can we just have maybe one person asking one question with no follow-ups so that we can get as many questions in as possible? As possible. Uh, okay, so we have 15 minutes to spare. So, all right. Questions. All right. Questions. Um, a show of hands, and then I'll call on you to ask a question. A question for Tiba, GD. Actually, I had to lock the meeting because some people could come in and were disturbing. So, not that people the chance to Right, looks like there are no questions. Any questions? All right, go, cool, we are good. <clears throat> if there are no questions, we can round up. Yeah, we can, we can go ahead. All right, sure. So, um, I can say thank you very much. This this was um, made for... Yes, can you hear me? Yeah, I do. I do hear yeah, you. we can hear you now. All right, sure. Um, so, this was made possible by Discovering Truth. Um, basically, you're trying to... Osigunwa, do you have a question? Siguan Nelson. I do not. I do not. You can proceed. Okay, cool. cool. All right, sure. So um, this is made possible by Discovering Truths. Basically, facilitates um, these kind of conversations. Um, what we would like to implore all of us here is to kindly send the recommendations and suggestions regards to topics and speakers you would like us to have in our uh, subsequent episodes, and we would want to consider all of them. Once again, thank you so much, Jide, as usual. Um, and T-Bag. I think T-Bag and yeah, I have sure. had an interaction on Twitter, but I think just once. Uh, it was about, I think, the, he shared a picture about um, how Christianity and other religions were too close to violence. I don't know if you remember that. That's what he did here. My man. So, guys, all the best and have a very good evening. Thank you very much. Thank you You're very welcome. much for having me. I'm very grateful. Yeah. Thanks too. To yeah, Jide. Yeah, good to meet you too. All right. Thank you everyone for listening to you. All right. Bye. Have a nice evening, all of you.